0: Tonight, our subject will be a group that you're probably familiar with because they set up shop on a lot of street corners, particularly in uptown Charlotte, or they come door to door. Tonight, we will study what most know as Jehovah's Witnesses. Perhaps you've heard the phrase, the Watchtower Society. We're going to discuss who they are, what they believe, why they believe it, and Lord willing, it will serve you and me as we are given by God's grace opportunity to engage them with the gospel. It's always going to help if we know what they believe and why they believe it. So why don't you join me as we pray? Let's ask God to help us, and then we'll commence with our study of Jehovah's Witnesses. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm asking that you would come now and that you would speak through me. I pray I would speak words that are fair and charitable, accurate, I'm asking, Lord, that you would use my words to edify these brothers and sisters, to strengthen their faith, to stiffen their resolve, to bank their life on the trustworthiness of your revealed word. And I'm asking this in Jesus' name, amen. What comes to your mind first when you hear the phrase, Jehovah's Witnesses? When you hear JW, perhaps your mind goes to some people. Perhaps the first image you get is just of the Jehovah's Witness uh, missionary. Those JW folks that are always very nicely dressed. They're some of the kindest, respectable people. They typically have a, a stand next to them filled with literature. And usually they're not too pushy. Sometimes they are, but oftentimes they'll just sit there and kind of politely smile at you. And if you engage them, then they'll talk with you about their literature. Occasionally they'll come to your door. Maybe that's what comes to your mind. Maybe what comes to your mind is some of the more famous Jehovah's Witnesses throughout history, which is kind of crazy that I put this in the top category. But some of the most famous ones today are, for example, the famed tennis players Venus and Serena Williams. You hear their names, and maybe that's associated with Jehovah's Witnesses. Or one of the most famous musical artists of the last hundred years, Prince himself. He was noted as a Jehovah's Witness? Did you know that Michael Jackson was reared in a Jehovah's Witness home? His mother was a practicing JW. Did you know that President Dwight D. Eisenhower was originally raised as a Jehovah's Witness? He left that practice uh, later in life, which is why most people aren't terribly familiar with it. Maybe your mind goes there. Or maybe your mind doesn't go necessarily to people profiles per se, but maybe you go to publications, literature, you've seen those, uh, all those pieces of literature that the JWs put out, right? Did you, rec- did you know that the JWs are some of the most prolific publishers on earth? Their magazines have a circulation that rivals USA Today. Their magazine, maybe you've seen the Watchtower magazine, or maybe you've seen one that has just one word with an exclamation point, Awake. Have you ever seen any of those publications? Maybe that's where your mind goes. People or places. Maybe your mind goes to just odd practices. You ever heard of those folks, it's the JWs, by the way, who don't get blood transfusions? You're thinking, man, what is going on there? Why won't they just get a blood transfusion? If you need it, just, just do it. Or maybe you've heard some of these odd little stories of, oh, so JWs, they're the people that don't celebrate Christmas. They think Christmas trees are of the devil. Or they don't celebrate Easter, which is really weird. Why won't they do that? Or even weirder of all, I got that JW friend who won't throw a birthday party for his child. They won't do birthday parties. That's that's an odd practice. Maybe you've heard JWs teach that a cross is a pagan symbol. They won't have one hanging on their neck or hanging on their wall. You won't see one in a church. Why on earth? Are they so against the cross? These are those odd practices foreign to traditional Orthodox Christians, and you're trying to wrap your mind around, who are these folks? And so tonight, what I want to do, as I've tried to do in previous sessions, is I want to, to the best of my ability, be fair and charitable to who they are, what they believe, uh, what they teach. I want to help you guys get rid of the caricature so that you can have, to a degree, a a faithful understanding. Now, admittedly, I'm biased. I believe they are a cult. I put them in that category. I am your pastor, after all. I believe in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And I believe in the Bible, the word of the living God. So I am admittedly biased, but I have sought to do my best to present their story fairly and accurately. So, tonight, to pursue our study as we did last week, let's try to answer four questions that I think will serve each of us as we try to wrap our minds around who on earth are these JWs? Let's start with where on earth do they come from? We'll briefly trace their history. What's the backstory behind the JWs? Then we'll look at their sources of authority. What on earth do they read? Where do they get their stuff? We'll, we'll go to what is it that they depend on? Where do they find their authority? And then probably the most critical question, what on earth do these folks teach? What's their theology? What do they believe that I don't believe? How does it differ? And that'll land our plane with this final question, why do we call them a cult? What are the main differences between them and we as Orthodox Christians? That'll be our course of study for tonight. Let's begin at the beginning. Where on earth did they come from? And what's pretty wild is their origination is not altogether different than the Mormons' origination. Same region of the country, same time period. Interesting, is it not? It all began in the mid-19th century, the 1800s, in a Scotch-Irish-Presbyterian home in what is now Pittsburgh. There was a family rearing their children And one of their children perhaps was a lot like one of your children. Raised in this Presbyterian home, he went to a church that taught doctrine. And some of the doctrines that were taught in this church disturbed this boy, this teenage son. He really struggled with a couple doctrines in particular. He found them distasteful. He could not stomach that a God would actually do these things, and he began to become skeptical. Incidentally, the doctrines that he got heartburn over were the doctrines of predestination. What on earth does it mean when the Bible says that we are preordained, that God has chosen us before the foundation of the world? He could not stomach the Presbyterian concept of this. He, he, He rejected that God. And then perhaps the most common doctrine that people to this day choke on, stumble on, is he could not stomach the notion that there is a God who sends people to hell. He hated with a passion the concept of an eternal damnation. He thought there's no way that a good God could do these things. And so he became, as perhaps some of your own children, Lord forbid, but I know this is true, perhaps like some of your children or grandchildren have done. And he began to backpedal away from his church. He began to reject the faith of his father and of his mother. He became a full-blown skeptic until one day. It says he was in the basement. It's unclear to me precisely what it's referring to, but it sounds like a club or a pub or a bar of some sort. He was in this basement hall where he heard a preacher. And there was a preacher teaching this doctrine that was very cool, neat, new, common in the mid-19th century, in those mid-1800s. By the way, we're talking a few years after the Civil War ended. This all happened around the year 1870. There was a new doctrine that was running like wildfire throughout the United States. This doctrine began with a man named William Miller. And this man taught a doctrine that people today refer to as Adventism. Now, I'm not going to go too far into this, but the word Advent comes from the Latin word Adventus, which means coming. And an Adventist person is somebody who has a really core conviction about Jesus coming again. Well, this man, because you're thinking, well, am I an Adventist? Because, Kyler, don't you and I believe Jesus is coming again? Amen. Except This guy, William Miller, taught that Jesus was going to come again in 1844. He was really convicted that this was going to happen. And there was this great movement that started to follow him. They started to sell their things. They were ready. They were singing, people get ready, Jesus is coming. And they thought they were going to all go home in 1844. And guess what happened? Didn't happen. And do you want to know what theologians and historians call that? I'm not kidding. It's called the Great Disappointment. (laughs) Talk about a disappointment, is it not? He screwed up. By the way, there's been lots of guys since him that have tried to guess when it does. Any of y'all remember that fame book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming Back in 1988? That was 35 years ago. My friends, this movement, you'd think it would have just petered out after he got it wrong. But then he's like, oh, I forgot to... Carry the one. I I got the numbers wrong. (laughs) And so he moved the the date up a little bit further. Well, as you might expect, that date was wrong. Until some other preacher started to theorize something. Hmm. Maybe he's right. Jesus is coming back at such and such a date, but he's not going to come back visibly. He's going to come back invisibly. He's not going to come back physically. He's going to come back spiritually. And so there are all these people called Adventists who began to preach around the regions of the northeastern United States that Jesus was going to be returning if not had if he had not already, but it would be an invisible spiritual return, not a physical, visible return. This group also. ...tended to believe that hell was not an eternal punishment. They taught that when you died outside of Christ, you just disappeared. That's what's called annihilationism. By the way, there are people that still believe this to this day. The view annihilationism is the view that if you die outside of Christ, you just cease to exist. You you disappear altogether. Well, this young skeptical teenager who's rejecting the faith of his mommy and daddy, he's in this pub of sorts, and he hears this local preacher preaching this Adventist view, and all of a sudden he gets his interest peaked. By the way, do you want to know what will grow a church? Preach the book of Revelation, because everybody wants to know what on earth is happening today. A danger of obsessing over end times things is it's titillating. It's just fascinating. You don't actually have to have the Spirit of God within you to be interested in it. Beware if that is somebody's complete bit. If they are just utterly fixated on end times issues, beware that that is like a boat that's unmoored. It can be thrown about by the winds and waves of the sea. And so they'll preach as if they're saying, Let's the Lord, about something that happened in the Iraq War in 2003. I mean, it didn't come to pass. These are the same folks that preached with equal fervor in the 1940s that this was the end. And folks, World War II, I'll admit, it sure seemed like that might have been the end, but it wasn't the end. That was, what, 80-some-odd years ago at this point? The, The point is you need to beware when somebody gets overly fixated on how to put together the end times because it's fascinating. And this young man was fascinated he began to listen and it says like his eyes were opened again and he decided you know what i'm going to give the bible another chance so he began a bible study by the way this man's name was charles taze russell ct russell you've probably never heard of him before he is somebody's who you need to know charles taz russell this young boy he started to A Bible study for himself and as he began to study the Bible with some friends he committed the great sin of Bible study do you want to know what's the worst thing you can do in a Bible study is sit around a table like this and say hey brother what does this mean to you and he's like well this is what it means to me and I'm like oh that's good what does it mean to you Monica says the exact opposite and I'm like "Mm, amen sister You can't say two contradictory things. Truth is determined by God, not by us. True Bible study is what did God mean, not what do you think it means. He began to commit the great sin of Bible study, reading into it what he wanted. And as he began to read into it, he theorized something that's pretty wild. He theorized that the Lord had come back in 1874, invisibly, spiritually, and that he was in an invisible form getting the world ready for him to rule and reign as king of kings and lord of lords. And he had a particular year and month he would finally set up shop as the king. October of 1914. You're thinking... How did he come up with that? Where did he get that year? Unfortunately, it's very complicated, and I don't want to give you every detail because you'll get lost, admittedly. But let me just say it as simply as I know how. He basically read Daniel 4. And if you go read Daniel 4, it refers to this general idea that there's going to be a period of the Gentiles, and after a period of seven times, if you go read Daniel 4, it kind of has this vague reference to the seven seasons ending. He did some weird math and calculated out that this period of the Gentiles would end 2,500, and it was like 64 years or whatever the exact number was, after Jerusalem got destroyed by Babylon, which in history was around 607 BC. Most will say 605 BC. He built it off 607 BC. And he believed that that many years after Jerusalem gets destroyed by Babylon God was going to end the season of the Gentiles and set up shop as king of kings and lord of lords. Well, if you do the math, that many years after 607 B.C. was the year 1914. So he was adamant that 1914 was going to be the year that God came back and ruled and reigned forevermore. Now, folks, what do you think people thought of this message? Here's what's scary. Everybody loves it when a preacher gets on TV and tells you how to make sense of the end times. Everybody does. You and me, we are all naturally, what does that mean? What is happening in Iraq? What's happening in Ukraine right now? How does this connect? It's very, very easy to fall into this trap of trying to connect the dots. We're all naturally prone to do that. And people started to like what he had to say because they're seeing what's happening around their country and they're thinking, well, this is interesting. Maybe he is back right now. They started to see revivals happening. This was in the era of the Second Great Awakening. And they're thinking, well, maybe he is actually returned spiritually. We just don't see him, but like he's about to to finish it all. And so it actually kind of starts to take off. But he recognized something. How many of you... I need you to raise your hands in all honesty, and I'm going to raise my hand with me. How many of you have no memory of what the pastor typically preached a week ago? I'm raising my own hand. I often forget what I preach 24 hours later. It's natural. We just have minds where, even if it was the greatest sermon you've ever heard, three days later, you've forgotten about it. Because life happens. That's, just very, that's human nature. You easily forget. He recognized that he couldn't be in front of people enough to get them to remember, so he started to innovate. And he thought, I've got to write down everything I believe and put it in a publication that will spread out and keep the news in front of everybody. I want them to know my new doctrine. So he began to write it down in this periodical. He began it in the year 1879. And that periodical he adopted from the biblical language, borrowed from Isaiah, of Zion's Watchtower, A watchtower is somebody who's like looking out for the signs of somebody that's coming. And he said, similarly, this magazine is a watchtower. It's going to help you be prepared for when God returns. So he began this publication called The Watchtower, which to this day is still published. The Watchtower is the key publication of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Now, we'll come back to that in a moment. Let's continue the narrative of the story. He's publishing this everywhere. He's actually caught lying multiple times. Lots of people end up interviewing him, and he is lying to people, telling them he knows Greek and Hebrew, and he's parsing all of the things and recognizing that it's actually a farce. And by the end of his life, his great moment, he is on the verge of his great prophecy coming to pass. 1914 is amongst us. It is here Is he going to come? And folks, what happens in 1914? A whole lot of nothing. Yeah, 1915 came a-coming. And he ends up dying, I believe it was two years later. I'm pretty sure it was 1916, might have been 1917, very closely thereafter. And there was a great disappointment yet again where folks are wondering, well, what do we make of this? But they had a business going at this point. Because they had quite the publication company happening. In fact, they had moved their headquarters from Pittsburgh to what city would you say is the most strategic city in the United States to be in if you want to influence the country? What city is the, the center to this day? It's the most important city in our nation, arguably. They wanted to move to New York. And so they moved their headquarters to Brooklyn, New York, and they began a publishing empire that still rules and reigns to this day. There was a lot at stake here. In fact, there was a lawyer, his lawyer, the man who basically defended old C.T. Russell. He kind of had taken over as heir apparent. His name uh, was Rutherford. Some people even called him Judge Rutherford. And he ends up succeeding C.T. Russell as the next guy who's going to ru- uh, rule over this new sect, the Watchtower Tower tract society, these group of people that believe these crazy things about how God is going to come back. But there's starting to be some fissures, some dissension. Groups are starting to disagree with this, that, or the other. There's a group that's all wigged out with C.T. Russell, and they're not quite sure he was right, and so they kind of start to break off and do their own thing. And so Rutherford decides, I got to rebrand. I got to figure out how to make my group A homogenous group. I want my group to have a new unity, a new vision. It's like renaming the church. It used to be the First Baptist Church of, and now it's like Ocean Church or something. That's what he decided to do with this group. And he decided we're going to identify ourselves as Jehovah's Witnesses. He wanted a name that referenced a key belief they had, and I'm about to tell you this, the name Jehovah is significant to them. He wanted a name associated with a key core odd belief. And they wanted a name that referred to the fact that they are witnesses for him. They are not only witnessing to others about him, but they, are witness, they, are, they can't wait to witness him come again. Now, here's what's interesting. Some of you are thinking, well, what did they do about 1914? If that was like a big date, which to this day, the year 1914 is significant to them. What did they do with the year 1914? Well, like is always the case with these uh, false prophets, they decided we got to reinterpret it. So what the meant was, what I meant was, the year 1914 is kind of talking about just like a sign of the wicked times. It's not necessarily that year per se. Or maybe it's the generation of 1914. So they started to believe that he was going to come back perhaps in the generation of 1914. Or maybe he did come back invisibly. And this generation that was born in the 1914 was the last generation of his chosen witnesses. They basically just started pulling stuff out of the thin air to try to grapple with their great prophet who made up this stuff. In fact, to this day, if you go to Pittsburgh, you can find C.T. Russell's grave. And there on his gravestone, it reads inscribed, The Laodicean Messenger. Because they believed he was the great messenger of God The book of Revelation describes going to the Church of Laodicea, that final church age, which some would describe us as. He was God's great final messenger, who is going to come and right all the wrongs of the Christian denominational church. Well, he ends up dying. Rutherford takes over. He renames them. He starts to improvise with some door-to-door training. They started out with these pre-recorded things. So. They would come knock on your door, and when you open the door, they would have like this recording of sorts that they would listen to. But then, after Rutherford ends up coming off the scene, a new guy comes into play, Nathan Knorr, K-N-O-R-R. This man is the man who basically innovated the Jehovah's Witnesses. He's the guy that came up with two critical things, one you're familiar with, one you're going to be familiar with tonight. The first one you're familiar with is he is the great innovator of their door-to-door evangelism strategy. He's the one that said, here's how we're going to get this message out. You're going to go do all these door-to-door tactics, which became quite common through the 20th century. Candidly, you see less of that today. That might be partly due to the fact that how many of you guys, when the doorbell rings, the first thing you do is look at your wife and like, who is that? Because people don't come to the front door as much anymore. It's less common. So you're immediately like, oh my gosh, who's there? You pull out your ring camera, and my wife and I sometimes do that. We check the ring camera first before we go walk down there. It's just highly uncommon to have people at the front door. Now you see them more typically at uh, corners of roads, like in Uptown, for example. But he, he innovated this strategy. There was another thing, probably the most lasting legacy, this final president of the Jehovah's Witnesses had, He is the one who spearheaded the publication of the Jehovah's Witness Bible. Tonight, I stood in the lobby with this Bible in my hand and actually got complimented by a few folks on my nice new Bible. (laughs) Unfortunately, this is a heretical Bible. This is the Jehovah's Witness Bible. Some of you might be shocked when I tell you the name of the translation because you're like, oh, I got that. I didn't know that. Anybody ever heard of the New World Translation? NWT. That is the Jehovah's Witness Bible. Let me tell you what I mean by that. The Jehovah's Witnesses have a few odd convictions that drove them to reinterpret their Bible. One of their first key sources of authority is not our Bible, it's this Bible. In fact, that moves to our second question now. What do they read? The first thing I want you to note is that they depend on this translation of the Bible called the New World Translation. Now, the New World Translation makes a few decisions that candidly make no sense. There is no Greek or Hebrew scholar on God's green earth who would say their translation decisions were right. What we must conclude is that they came to the Bible with a bias, with an agenda, and decided to interpret the Bible in light of their bias or their agenda. For example, a core conviction of the Jehovah's Witnesses is that the name of God is one name and one name only. That the only right and appropriate name you can ever use to refer to God the Father is the name Jehovah. Now, some of you are thinking, Jehovah's a good name, right? I mean, we've seen songs about that. Isn't Jehovah God's name? Well, the Bible actually has several names for God the Father. And this is just the hard truth. In the Hebrew, it has the name El and Elohim. Those are two words that we see translated into the English uh, God. It also has the name Adonai. We have that translated into the English Lord, L-O-R-D, but lowercase O-R-D. But it also has the tetramagon. Have any of you ever heard of the tetragrammaton? I said tetramagon. Tetragrammaton. That is a Latin word for word with four letters. And that word with four letters is Y-H-W-H. In the Hebrew, did you know the Hebrew language, which is the original language of the Old Testament, it has no vowels. Which, by the way, when I had to learn Hebrew for seminary, it made it real tough. When you were reading words... And Hebrew reads from right to left, not left to right, so you're already backwards. The symbols look nothing like uh, Latin symbols, so you have no idea what those things mean. And then there's no vowels. So you're just like, it's like reading code. Feels like you were having a crack code there. It has no vowels, and so whenever you come across God's name, the Tetragrammaton, you just see Y-H-W-H. Now, what does that say in English? <laughs> what does that sound? There's no vowel there. So we actually don't really know what the vowels make. Scholars throughout the ages have largely fallen into two main camps. Some say there's a zh sound at the beginning, Jehovah. That's where they put those sounds together. And so the YHWH correlates into this word Jehovah. You've also heard another view that's quite common that the words should come together into Yahweh, Yahweh. They actually both mirror those four consonants that describe God's name in the Old Testament. Now, just the hard truth is, we don't know the difference, which is why Orthodox Christians interchangeably use those names with reference to it. If you actually read it in the English, do you know what your Bible says? If you ever come across YHWH, the Tetragrammaton in the Old Testament, you are going to find Have you ever noticed in the Bible, sometimes Lord is lowercase, but sometimes all four letters are uppercase? That is a reference to Yahweh or to Jehovah. It is L-O-R-D, all capitalized. It is those four letters, Y-H-W-H. Well, the New World Translation found every example in the Bible, not just of Jehovah, not just of Y-H-W-H. I'd have no problem with that. But every time El is found, or Elohim, or Adonai, it goes to the New Testament. Every time Kyrios, which is the word Lord in Greek, is found, they would translate that. Uh, every time they would find these words Theos in the Greek as another word for God, they would translate every one of those as Jehovah. Which you know, bad translation decision. But is that really like? I'm not sure that that would like put you outside of Orthodox Christianity. It's just really bad scholarship, and you're. I don't know why you're doing that. That's not the end all of the Jehovah's Witnesses, but that explains why they have such a a fixation on the word Jehovah. But here's where it gets problematic. This moves into our next category. And I'm going to come back in a moment to another source of their authority. As we start to parse out everything they believe, there's a few things they believe about Jehovah that now are going to start concerning us. On the one hand, Jehovah's Witnesses, as a conviction, they reject the Trinity. They do not look at the triune Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and view them as we do. They actually view Yahweh, Jehovah, God the Father, as the only God, full stop. They believe that God the Father is, is the one true God, and that the Trinity is a pagan concept that originated with Satan. And they'll try to make some historical arguments about triune gods being evidenced in ancient pagan religions of Egypt and Babylon, and they'll just say Christians made it up. If you read the Bible, you'll never actually see a Trinity, which, by the way, if you read the Bible, you'll never find on one page the word Trinity. That is a true statement. But the Trinity is quite clear in it. It's the same way you don't find a host of other words in the Bible. Nevertheless, the concept is clearly taught. We'll come back to that in a moment. Now let's talk through what they believe about this God. Jesus is where they get off the rails. They believe that Jesus Christ, whom we worship as the second eternal person of the Trinity, they believe that Jesus was God's first and best creation. Now, before I go any further, some of you may... It's been a while, so perhaps you've forgotten. But a year or two ago, I taught you church history. And in our first seminar of church history, early church history, I told you that one of the greatest heretics in church history, one of the guys that was absolutely repudiated by the Christian church around the year 400 A.D., was a man named Arius because Arius taught a doctrine that Christians have rejected since 3 to 400 AD and that doctrine was that Jesus was created that he is not the eternal son of God he was created at christmas before christmas there was no person second person of the trinity post christmas we got the baby Arianism, that view that Arius taught, is alive and well today. And it's alive and well in the JW movement. The JWs, like the Arians of old, teach that Jesus was created, God, Jehovah's first creation. Now, it gets crazier. They believe that Jesus was first created as Michael the archangel. A key core belief of theirs is that Prior to the incarnation, to Christmas, to the New Testament, Jesus existed as an angel. Michael, the famed archangel, angel of the Lord. That's what they believed Jesus was. They believed he ceased to be an angel when he came to earth as a baby in Mary's womb. He gave up his angelic nature. He became a full human. Stop. No divinity anymore. He was just, went from angel, now he's a man. He was born, raised, died. They believe that Jesus died on a stake, not a cross. They have a fixation on some historical evidence of Romans crucifying criminals on a status, or this, this stake, rather than on a cross itself. And they have this unusual fixation on the fact that, that the cross, the Roman cross, is just a pagan symbol that Christians have been obsessed with to this day, but that it's false, and what he actually died on was but a stake. Kind of an incidental odd uh, belief of theirs. They believe that his death was a sacrifice just like Adam's sin was originally. They would say when Adam sinned and caused sin to enter the world, Jesus died to get us back to square one. So let's say if we were on a level playing field, Adam fell, we all fell with him. Jesus dies and brings us all back up to the same level. So it's like we're back to square one again. Jesus dying for us was just a human dying to help us get back to a fair, even playing field so that now we can effectively save ourselves. More on that in a moment. They also believe. That Jesus resurrected spiritually, not physically. So they don't believe that there is a physical bodily risen and reigning Lord Jesus today. They just believe he spiritually came out of the ground, and I'm going to tell you why that's a critical belief in a moment. And that he's just uh, alive today as a spiritual being. Now I think you guys immediately are now detecting that this is not Christianity. This is Christianish. It's using words and phrases and concepts of Christianity, but this is not the faith for all once delivered to the saints. You could yawn at the weird interpretation of Jehovah in the Bible. You might think the fixation on the cross is weird, but, you know, everybody's got that weird belief, and, you know, there's always that person in your Sunday school class that you just kind of yawn at and move on. But then when it gets to this, you're like, okay, this isn't Christianity. This is foreign altogether. The Holy Spirit they reject. They do not believe, as Orthodox Christians do, that the Holy Spirit is the eternal third person of the Trinity, a person, not an it, not a force like Star Wars. They kind of believe he's a force like Star Wars. They believe the Holy Spirit is like electricity. It's just this active force throughout the world. It's divinity at play rather than the eternal second per- or third person of the Trinity. Moreover, they have an unusual belief about human beings. They believe we are, for lack of a better word, living souls. To understand what I mean by that, let's remind ourselves what we believe the Bible teaches about humanity. We believe the Bible teaches that you and I are eternal souls. We are souls that will live forever. You've heard me say time and again that every person you will ever meet will live forever. Just remember that. You will not cease to exist. You will either live eternally In the presence of your maker or eternally separated from the presence of your maker. But when you die, your soul will live on. Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that. They believe that the soul and the body are one entity in so far as when you die, your soul ceases. They would believe that physical death brings about permanent death to your soul. That you are gone at that point. So they believe human beings are just this living soul that only exists as long as their heart is beating. Now, the reason this is an important belief is because Jehovah's Witnesses do have some unusual beliefs about what happens when you die. If you die outside of Christ, you're annihilated. You're gone. They believe hell is just that. It's you disappearing altogether. They they base this belief on the notion that Hell in the original language does have a reference to the common grave. So when you read words like Gehenna in the Old Testament, you're going to actually see there are translations of this just being like a graveyard. And they would say, that's all it is. It's just a graveyard where dead bodies go. They stop short of the fuller meaning of the whole concept of hell, which the Bible is actually pretty explicit on. Just go read Jesus, who talks about hell more than anybody else, and he is quite clear that it will be eternal, conscious torment forever, as horrifying a concept as that is. It's a clear teaching of Jesus. They reject that belief. They also believe, contra-Orthodox Christians, that when you die, if you are in Christ, your soul for lack of a better word, goes to sleep. Any of you ever heard of the phrase soul sleep? So soul sleep is the notion that when you die, you're not conscious anymore, and your soul just kind of like goes into hibernation until Jesus finally comes back and raises us all from the dead, and then at last we're with the Lord. Now, Christians have historically rejected this notion in favor of this view, which I've taught time and again. Christians have historically argued that to be absent with the body, as Paul says, is to be present with the Lord. And so they teach, I teach, that upon death, your next breath, you are in the presence of your maker. That presence is what theologians call the intermediate state. It's basically heaven now until... Revelation 21 and 22 teaches us he's going to recreate a new heaven and a new earth, the eternal state forevermore. But until that time comes, we are in the presence of our Lord. You'll be conscious so you can take great hope in the fact that your deceased loved one in Christ, their next breath, their next blink of the eye, so to speak, is in the presence of their maker. That's a widely held historic Christian doctrine. Jehovah's Witnesses would deny that and they would say that, no, the soul just goes into this period of sleep. Now, let's tease out how you become a Christian. How do you, bec- how do you get saved? Well, remember that little analogy I used with Jesus kind of leveling out the playing field? If Adam made it really hard for us to ever earn our way to God, Adam sinned and now we're all kind of like in trouble. Jesus died for us as a man and got us back up to our feet. It'd be kind of like by analogy, you you've meet a homeless person. They're down and out, they've had substance abuse issues, they have major financial issues, and so you want to get them back on their feet. So you, you get them in a good place to live, you get them food, you get them treatment to help them. These are all wonderful things, I would encourage any Christian to do this. But you do it with the hope that they'll now be self-sufficient, that they'll be able to provide and care for themselves. All of that's great. It's the same thing they think is happening when Jesus died. They think that because of Adam, we all can't help ourselves, essentially, Jesus died so that now we can. Now we are able, at last, to earn our way to God. And the rest of your life, you have to be a really good, obedient witness of Jehovah. And if that happens, you will be one who enters heaven. Now here's where it gets even more interesting. They believe in two kinds of heaven. They believe in what's called the anointed class and the other sheep class. The anointed class is a... It's basically like heaven above, and the other sheep level of heaven is basically like an earthly heaven below. It's this weird concept. They believe the heavenly class is populated, I wonder if any of you have heard this number before, it's populated with 144,000 people. You knew it, Richard, didn't you? You ever heard that number? It's a famed number in the book of Revelation, and they believe the number of 144,000 is referring to the special class Of Christians, of Witnesses of Jehovah, who are going to enjoy a rule and co-reign regency with Christ, uh, with with Jehovah in heaven. They believe that it's like the special people. In fact, they believed that the last that heaven that hundred forty four thousand. I don't know why they believe this. I think it's because one of their guys. I think Rutherford prophesied this. That in nineteen thirty five, heaven got full. I'm not kidding. (laughs) They believe that the 144,000 filled up. And they believe that there's only about 4,000 of them still living today. So it means there's some people that were, I guess, born around then, I don't know, who are still alive today that are in that class of heaven. Everybody else gets to go to the other sheep, lower heaven. Now, here's why. Why is there another heaven? Because they believe if Revelation teaches that we are going to rule and reign... You need somebody to reign over. How many men strut around like they're the king of their castle and they got nobody listening to them? It's like you're kind of ridiculous. You ever heard that leader? They, they always said a leader who has nobody following following him is just a guy taking a walk. If you don't have anybody to rule and reign over, that, they argue there's nothing meaningful to that word, so the 144,000 who get to rule and reign, they're going to reign over the rest of us who are in this uh, other sheep class of heaven. Some of the somewhat odd views of their beliefs. They believe that Jesus's second coming, this is honestly still perplexing to me to this day, they believe that Jesus's second coming spiritually occurred around the year 1914. In fact, my understanding is that they had it as official doctrine that it was going to happen in that generation until 1995, and they finally quietly scrubbed that because they recognized that generation was dying out and, you know, we're going to look really dumb again. So they kind of like reinterpreted that view of where 1914 comes into play. And now probably the average Jehovah's Witness would tell you something to the effect of... It was just a sign of wicked times. It wasn't necessarily 1914. It was 1914-ish. So sometime kind of like in this general period, we think Jesus is going to end up, uh, Jehovah rather is going to end up reigning over everything. This is admittedly blurry, is it not? I'm sorry. I've tried to slice and dice this as best I know how, but the doctrine is admittedly kind of fuzzy. Their main ways of getting this view out though is through two publications that I've already referenced. They publish, to this day, the Watchtower magazine, and they publish the Awake magazine. The Watchtower magazine has 32, uh, uh, 32 million circulation. It's an insanely big magazine. It is translated into 416 languages and has been around since 1879. The Awake magazine is just slightly smaller at like 31 million in circulation. And I think it's at like 216 languages or something to that effect. And it's been around a little less, but they're still everywhere. If you ever see a Jehovah's Witness at the street corner, in that rack of literature is going to be the Watchtower magazine and probably Awake. Awake is one of those, it's a reference to Romans. I believe it's Romans 13 where it talks about us awaking up and waking up to the times, and that's what they're trying to get everybody to wake up and see that they are Jehovah's Witnesses. Have any of you ever driven by a Jehovah's Witness church? What does it always say on the sign? I heard it. Kingdom Hall. You ever notice it always says like Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses? That's because they believe that that's not the church, which they're actually right in this sense. This building is not the church. We're the church. They believe it's just a hall where the people of the kingdom of God gather. They have no paid pastors. It's usually just kind of like an all-voluntary thing. There's rarely any staff involved. There's no formal hierarchy within their organization. And there, they'll basically just do a Bible study of sorts, kind of reiterating their millennial uh, end-time views on uh, how is this all going to end. That's, generally speaking, the way they would organize their worship together. Now, having said all of that, let's just take a step back now and recognize together what we're dealing with. Isn't it odd how Christian they appear in certain senses? I mean, they're talking about Jesus. This Bible is quite similar to ours. For example, you go read a good chunk of it, it's going to read pretty similar to yours. How many of you know John 1, 1 by heart? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Well, when you turn to John 1 and verse 1 in the New World Translation, it sounds so similar that you might have not caught it. You just got to slow down and recognize that it reads, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was a God. That's what it says right here in this Bible. Arguing that Jesus is but part of the panoply. They'll argue in this book that Jesus was not, did not say before Abraham was, I am. You remember that famous phrase? They translate it as Jesus saying before, before Abraham was, I have been. It's crazy, and there's no justification in the original language for this. They just made it up, candidly, they just made it up to support their own doctrinal position. Folks, the reason we need to be aware of Jehovah's Witnesses is because in truth, this is what we would call a cult. That which claims to be Christian, but is in the final analysis, not contending for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. This is not quibbling between Baptists and Presbyterians. This is just not another flavor of Christianity. This is not christianity it denies who god is it denies him as the triune god eternally existent as father son and spirit which the bible repeatedly makes reference to it denies jesus as the eternal son of god who has always existed but was incarnate born of a virgin mary lived the life we never lived died the death that we deserve vicariously substitutionarily in our place and was risen physically, bodily from the dead and is risen, ascended and reigning this day physically as king of kings and lord of lords. They deny this. They make a mockery of how he has returned by basically just pulling out random junk from the air like every other false prophet of old. They're just making stuff up. I hate to talk that way, but that is just the hard truth. They deny who God is. They clearly deny what he says, they, they twist scriptures literally, like they actually retranslate them to support their own position on what they want the Bible to teach. So they've denied who he is, what he's said. In a very real sense, they deny who we are biblically. They're arguing that we are not as the Bible conveys us. We are this uh, body-soul union that upon death we just disappear. And they deny what we ultimately need. Jesus is just like a really good help that got you back to square one, but then you got to do the rest. Which, interestingly enough, it's not an exact parallel, but it's eerily similar to Catholicism, which broadly would argue that uh, Jesus made it possible for you to do sufficient good works to get the rest of the way. It's like the cross got you three fourths of the way, and now you got enough to kind of reach over and finish the job. That's the view they teach. And, folks, the heart of Christianity. The part and parcel of the Christian gospel is that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. We believe that there is not one shred of anything you could possibly do this side of eternity that will merit yourself before God. That you, me, and Billy Graham will all stand at the same level footing before the cross of Christ with empty hands and our plea will be one and the same. It will be... I am not worthy, but Jesus is worthy, and his blood has atoned for me. In fact, when God looks at you and he knows every dark thought of your heart, everything you have done that your spouse doesn't even know, he will not see it. All he will see is the blood of the lamb covering you. You who will want to fall to your face in that moment, he will come at that moment, and as Jude tells us, make you and I stand in his presence blameless, which is just an astounding reality that the wicked sinner that I am will be raised by my maker in his presence to stand blameless with great joy, the Bible says, which is insane that the uh, eternal holy God will have joy at making me a wicked sinner stand before him. What grace, what mercy, the gospel is great news because it is a gospel of grace. And so... We have good news for Jehovah's Witnesses. We ought not come to them with some righteous indignation of condemnation. We come to them with a hopeful message that they have been led to believe some things that honestly, like it doesn't take that much to recognize that what you are arguing is not biblically substantiated. I mean, just take John three, John 1 verse 3. So it starts with, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Verse 3, in him nothing was made that has been made, apart from him rather, nothing has been made that was made. The verse says Jesus made everything and nothing in this world that has been made was made apart from him. That actually reads that way in their Bible. So the question you got to ask is, all right, well, there's basically two categories of reality. There's things that were made and things that weren't made. So what is in the category of things that weren't made? Even Jehovah's Witnesses would say what you would say. What's the only thing ever that was not created? God himself, the Trinity, God. Everything in the other category is everything else that has ever existed. Everything was made by him. So now the question is, Well, if the Bible teaches that Jesus made everything, and they actually believe that, they'll believe that Jesus was God's first creation, and then Jesus came and made everything else, which categories does Jesus fall into? Either he is the one who made everything, or he is the one that was part of all the things that got made. You've got to choose a category, and they're going to want to put him in this category, but that's a category that belongs to Jehovah God. Either Jehovah made him, and then he made everything else, or or not, and that's the great, that's honestly a pretty simple tactic. You can use Jehovah's Witnesses and say, you can't have it both ways. If, he, if God is the only one that never uh, was created, Jesus falls into this category. Folks, you can just help them understand that Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible, even if you go flip through these pages of the New World Translation, you'll be able to show them, apart from the ones that they've jerry-rigged, you can help them see, folks, that this Jesus is no mere man. He is the eternal Son of Of God and you can give them great hope that there is nothing you can do to earn your way to your maker but praise be to God there is one who has done for you what you cannot do for yourself and so take heart dear friends when Jehovah's Witnesses come to you there is a lot of common ground there's a lot of unusual understanding of the God we know and love but it has been distorted and so I pray that this will serve you well as God in his grace gives you opportunity to engage with Jehovah's Witnesses, and maybe in that moment, you can be a true witness to Jehovah. Tomorrow, uh, tomorrow, next Wednesday, <laughs> I need more time than tomorrow to prepare for next Wednesday. Next Wednesday is going to be real interesting. We're going to study what's called Christian science. Any of you all ever seen those little buildings called Christian science reading rooms? You ever seen that around town? You're like, what on earth is that? First time I saw it as a kid, I really thought it was like a Christian bookstore with science books. That's what I thought. I didn't have a concept for it. We're going to learn its backstory. You won't want to miss it. I hope you guys will be back next Wednesday. Would you join me as we pray? We'll call it a night. Father in heaven, thank you for these brothers and sisters. I pray what I spoke on tonight was fair and charitable and useful. Would you equip us, Lord, to cherish that which we hold so dear and to be faithful witnesses to you, Jehovah God. May we be found true and faithful. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good night, everybody. We'll see you next Wednesday.